Hi everyone, welcome to the Hashtag Never Alone podcast. This is episode five. I'm your host, Joe Ambridge, and I'm here with co-host, psychotherapist and a relationship counsellor, Mark Fielding. Hi, Mark. How are you, Joe? And today's topic is postnatal depression. This is the first episode we've done on a topic that's not been covered on the video podcast. Um, We do have a guest here that we are going to introduce shortly who's going to talk about their life or experience living with postnatal depression. Um, So, Mark, what can you tell me about uh, postnatal depression? Yeah. Sure. Well, post, I mean, postnatal depression, you know, perinatal depression, also is it. There's a level, a really high level of complexity to it. Um, there, you know, the the causes of it, you know, can be many, and it, it really, really depends. I think on the individual. Um, I mean, science has told us that you know, genetics can play a part. Um, and also kind of hormones, you know, the change of hormones, you know, during pregnancy and after, you know, and I think also obviously the the natural stress that I think comes with having a baby and the, you know, the change of life. Um, and, and I would say also, you know, often the change of identity, you know, for, for a woman um, can also play in. Um, I mean, also I think a past history of, depression or trauma can also play in i mean if somebody if a, a, a mother has had maybe episodes of depression in the past um, or traumatic situations in the past then the past and the current situation can link up and create in a situation where you know the, the new mother becomes very depressed um and and also I've, I've worked with this quite a lot in my own practice and I mean, this is not always the case, of course, but I think often the trauma of the birth can really play a part. Um, I, I think, you know, mothers, when, you know, when they're, they're, they're having their child, I guess they're coping, you know, the, the, the birth can be quite difficult and they're coping and they're getting through and then immediately there's a newborn there to look after, you know, but often I think clients come back to the birth and when looking back over it, they feel that it was really traumatic and often there can be PTSD symptoms. Um, also postnatal depression can come in around relationship difficulties. If of course there are relationship difficulties with, with the couple before the baby was born, these are likely to be further reinforced, you know, once the baby is born because, you know, of the stress on the couple dynamic that's been induced. Um, I mean, generic symptoms of postnatal depression are feeling very low, um, crying. Sleep can also be, you know, an enormous issue. Um, sleep can be really, really difficult to get just by virtue of having a newborn. But I think with postnatal depression, sleep can become a real problem um, for some women. Um, and it can also lead to, you know, some women struggling to bond initially, you know, with their child and then noticing that lack of bonding can bring, I think, another layer of, of guilt and shame. Um, and sometimes looking for support is really, really difficult. Um, so a lot of complexity, I think. So um, what are kind of like signs and symptoms of uh, postnatal depression? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can vary, okay, and uh, I guess with the same as with depression, I guess there's a, there's a spectrum, but I think feeling very low, feeling overwhelmed, finding it really difficult to cope, um, feeling very anxious, um, again, sleeplessness, I think, you know, the natural sleeplessness of having a newborn can be really added to, I think, by somebody being depressed, because with depression, comes difficulty sleeping and then you know obviously i think a rebound effect comes in because you know with for all of us i think lack of sleep can really affect our mental functioning and when our mental functioning is affected by lack of sleep we're more likely to experience low mood and depression and you can kind of see how a you know almost a feedback loop is set set up and and also i think the the guilt and shame that is often present you know with new mums um, the, the fact that they're not coping and, you know, and they're not feeling, you know, perhaps how they feel that they should, you know, there's so much social construction, isn't there, around, you know, and pressure, you know, on, on women to, you know, to be the perfect mum and, you know, and there's so much on TV around having a baby and it, it's really kind of idealised. But I think the reality for, you know, many couples and many women is quite different initially. Yeah. So, um... Uh, there's another one called postpartum depression and postnatal. Um, what's the difference between postpartum depression and postnatal? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that is it, it's the same, really. Um, yeah, I mean, perinatal depression can be something that comes in, you know, during the pregnancy. And I guess I also wanted to maybe kind of link into men as well. I mean, I guess this is really kind of not so particularly known, but I guess men can also experience kind of postnatal depression as well. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Learn something every day. Um, so what sort of treatments are there? Because um, there is, uh, ad I know it's probably more publicised, it's one of the more publicised mental health disorders, I, I think, personally, because there are adverts here for it. Um, there's one that's on quite often about a woman talking out the, out the window and you feel like she's talking about her partner and then she's talking about her baby and then mm. she's on the video call to a nurse, um, which is quite a big advert here. Um, so what kind of treatments would you say there are for people with postnatal depression? Yeah, I mean, I, I think re re reaching out is incredibly important, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes women with postnatal depression find it difficult to reach out because they feel perhaps there's something wrong with them that they should be coping better so I think getting over that hurdle I think is really really important you know however difficult you know sometimes you know taking you know antidepressants can be really really helpful um, I mean the, the antidepressants can be taken for you know for a short time it doesn't have to be they don't have to continue for many years and also talking therapies I mean, talking therapies can also be really helpful. And in terms of perhaps where there's been a really, really difficult birth and perhaps there are PTSD symptoms, you know, I think talking therapies can be really, really helpful in terms of being able to go back and maybe just kind of have a look at that gently and explore kind of what went on during the birth. Because I think traumatic births are, are really common uh, and I think can really affect women after after the birth of their child. Their child. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we introduce our guest? Uh, no, 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 nothing else to add at this point. So we are lucky enough to have our guest with us today, Sandy Gibbons, who is our lived experience guest. Um, hi, Sandy. 
Oh, hi. How are you doing, Joe? Good, thank you. Um, so just tell us a little bit about um, your experience with uh, PND or postnatal depression, please. Sure. I, um, I was de I'm delighted to help with this because, um, as Mark said, I think one of the hardest things for women or, and, and the couple of a newborn child is dealing with the idea that every, every other set of new parents are coping. Why aren't we? Or in my case, why why wasn't I coping? And I could identify with so much of what Mark said. Um, the the bit that didn't apply to me is uh, I didn't have a traumatic birth at all. In fact, it was uh, a, this was my first child, and eleven hours from absolute start to finish. So I thought, oh well, this childbirth thing, this isn't too hard. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do this a few times in my life. Um, I had no past history of mental illness, but later came to realise that, that we do have genetic predisposition to mental illnesses in my family. Um, and I definitely identified with what Mark said about the lack of bonding. Um, our son had to have non-life-threatening surgery when he was two weeks old. And following that surgery, I mean, he recovered pretty well, with the exception that um, his feeding, his breastfeeding became problematic and his sleep was, I felt, non-existent. So, of course, my sleep was pretty non-existent. And um, I just started to, and even to this day, 26 years later, I'm almost ashamed to say, I started to resent him. Um, you know, I kept thinking about, well, my life was pretty all together before this kid came along. And then I realised... Um, how it, this was a very longed for child uh, my husband and I had been trying for three and a half years to conceive and the month we were due to start IVF was the month I fell pregnant so here was this miracle in my arms and yet I, I didn't resent I, I didn't bond with him and I didn't uh, I just then I felt guilty you know that I was feeling that way okay um so how was your child uh, have you got have you had any other children since or? no well sadly he was the only only child we were able to have um okay but what what transpired for me was that a lot of after the surgery a lot of the focus of the gp and the maternal and child health nurse was of course on jesse and and how was he progressing after the surgery and what did i have to supplement feed him with bottles etc and meanwhile, I felt, I, I literally felt invisible when I would go to the health appointments. Uh, as I say, all the focus was on Jesse and not at all on me. And um, I remember at some point, uh, my GP asked me um, how I was going. And I said, oh, I'm fine. And, and clearly everything about me was not fine. And she then asked me, in the past two weeks, have you experienced any joy or happiness or enjoyment in things that would normally provide those feelings for you? And that's, walls came down and the tears flowed and I realized that, yeah, I was just going through the motions of life um, and and not, not really feeling like I was being effective at anything I was doing and particularly my mothering. And I guess that yeah. you know, to jump in, Sandy, I mean, that 
really good question by the GP because I guess uh, I guess you know the, the doctor really opened the door for you so you could maybe talk about your experience. Yes, absolutely. Because meanwhile, um, here in Australia, we at that stage anyway, twenty six years ago, when you went home with a new baby, they the system worked out where your nearest new mothers group was, and I joined this new mothers group and. Every week, it seemed to me, all the other women in the group were showing up with big smiles on their faces and happy babies. And some of them were like color coordinated with their outfit and their baby's outfit. And they looked to have everything so handled, whereas I was on the inside just falling apart. And I remember after seeing the GP and getting the diagnosis um, at the next new mother's meeting, when we went around the, the circle and said, you know, how was your last week then? I said, well, I've been diagnosed with postnatal depression. And I, I, I don't know, it felt like 10 minutes. I'm sure it was only more like 10 or 15 seconds. But there was such silence you could have heard a pin drop. Wow. And then the, the nurse who was leading the meeting said, right, well, okay, um, our topic for today is um, breastfeeding or whatever the topic was. And she just moved on. And Oh, wow. It was like I had leprosy or something. Um, and I remember bumping into some of these women at the local grocery store and they just avoided me. And, you know, at the time I was very angry about that. But again, later when I was recovered, I thought, I, I think I, their fear to them perhaps, you know, it, what if it happens to me, you know, and it was easier not to talk with Sandy, either easier not to interact with Sandy, because I was a reminder of what can happen to women when we have babies. Yeah. And how frustrating, how, how frustrating for you, Sandy, I mean, to kind of open up in the group must have been quite difficult, you know, quite brave, and then to be shut down immediately. I guess that must have, I mean, how did that make you feel at the time? It must have been tough. Oh, well, incredibly isolated, <laughs> that was for sure. Yeah. Um, and look, the the doctor that really helped me get well, ultimately, talked to me about the fact that she considered postnatal depression a multifactorial illness. Um, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, hormonal. Um, also, for me, it, I had chemical imbalances, which I did take antidepressants to address. But she said also, it's sociological and psychological. And when she looked at my particular situation, um, my husband and I had just moved into um, a new home in a new suburb a long way from where we had previously lived. Previously lived. And so we didn't have the normal supports around us that we normally would. Um, both his family and my, his parents and my parents lived interstate, so we didn't have the grandparents, you know, coming in every day with, you know, uh, hugs and and for a while. Um, so there were a lot of sociological contributing factors to my situation, and the way the reaction I got at that new mothers group just kind of compounded that sense I had of being isolated, because of course my my husband was working full time. And um, I was alone with this baby all day. And um, you mentioned anxiety, Mark, and that reminded me of the countless days where I remember being at home with Jesse and feeling like the walls were closing in on me. And I thought, well, I I'll just 
I'll just go to the grocery store or I'll just, you know, go to the local shopping centre. So I'd bundle him in the car and we'd get into the shopping centre and I'd be walking, say, in the grocery store, walking around with a trolley uh, with with food in it and then suddenly I'd have a panic attack, feeling like I just can't be around this noise and this unfamiliar environment. So I left I don't know how many trolleys half filled with food in in supermarkets when I um, would grab Jesse and go back out to the car and pop him in the car and we'd go home. And it might have been 30 minutes or an hour later where those same feelings cycled around again. So I, I'm doing all these sort of weird things doing, during the day. And um, despite how much support I was getting from my husband, I felt so ashamed of, of how I wasn't coping. I didn't even tell him that, that this was what was happening during the day uh, for me. And, and the shame, you know, the, the, I mean, I guess this is kind of what I identify as the secondary layer that, that, that comes in for women. I mean, looking looking back, I mean, what was the shame saying? I mean, what, why it was it was it was there and it was quite present and stopping you from even talking to you know, your partner. But I mean, what, what looking back, why why was it so pronounced? Do you think? I, I think the two things. One is, I think you referred to earlier, Mike, was. Just, you know, you look at magazines and you look at TV shows and it shows all these, and, and you look at uh, celebrities, you know, they've had a baby and, you know, within six weeks they're back at their pre-baby weight and everything looks picture perfect. Um, and what was happening for me was definitely far from picture perfect. So I felt that there was something um, that I must be lacking some sort of skill that there was something um, deficient in me that I wasn't coping better. So that was definitely part of the shame. And the other part of the shame was ever since I was a very young child and people would say, you know, how we say to little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? The first thing out of my mouth was always I wanted to be a mommy. And, and, and so here I was, you know, this lifelong dream and I wasn't coping with it. And so then I, I felt, you know, that internal shame and that guilt about, well, you know, who are you if when your lifelong dream becomes fulfilled, you can't cope with it. And and I guess from what you say, Sandy, in part, you know, I mean, this is a bit, this, we could talk, you know, about the kind of social expectancies that are set up for women to achieve. I mean, that could be, you know, probably 10 podcasts we could talk about. <laughs> You know, but but there is, you know, I mean, inevitably so much pressure on women to look a certain way, be a certain way. And, you know, and as you say, you know, this is the, you know, a similar script comes into motherhood. You know, so a woman becomes a mother and, you know, I'm thinking of TV shows and the way it's all set up that everything should be perfect and there'll be no stress. And, you know, and, and, and of course, that that really is not the reality, you know, for most women and most couples. Mm. Oh, it, most definitely. And um, look, it, what what happens when, although I had this fantastic GP who kind of opened the door, I eventually decided that she didn't know what she was talking about and um, that I was okay. I was just tired. And so my husband ended up taking a couple of weeks work and uh, we went down to a friend's beach house and you know, I remember thinking, well, when we, you know, I'll just have this couple of weeks and 
you know, he can help with uh, looking after our son and everything will be fine when I can come back. And of course, as I later discovered, as one of my doctors said to me, well, if you go on holidays with a broken leg, you take your broken leg with you. Um, so I took my postnatal depression with me, but started to pretend that really I was fine. Um, I mean, that's how much pressure I was putting on myself. I don't, I mean, yes, the pressure from society contributes to that. But in the end, I was the one that bought into it as well. And eventually it got to the point where, you know, we're back home, husband's at work. And the fateful day came when my sister telephoned me. She was at work about 45 minutes away from where I lived. And she happened to comment, oh, it's, it's pretty quiet there, Sandy. Is Jesse asleep? And my answer was, I don't know. And she said, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, well, I don't know what he's doing. And she said, why don't you go check on him? And uh, I don't remember this conversation particularly, but this is how she has since related to me. And she said, I came back to the phone about 10 seconds later and said, oh, no, I can't find him. And she said, Sandy, I don't care how long it takes. I want you to go find Jesse and see if he's okay. And this, of course, was some 26 years ago when we had the old uh, corded phones, you know, the phones on a hook sort of thing. Sure. And um, according to my sister, I was, I, I left her hanging on the line for nearly 10 minutes and it must have been the most horrendous 10 minutes of her life when I remember I do remember coming back into the room and seeing the phone off the hook and thinking oh what, what's that doing and I picked up the phone and said hello and thankfully my sister realized things had really gotten quite seriously wrong and um, she investigated that afternoon came around to our house that evening and said look um, you know, Sandy, you're really sick. You really need some help. It's actually not safe that you're at home with Jesse during the day. So she had made arrangements that I could be admitted to a mother-baby unit the next day, uh, which is where I ended up. And um, I remember on admission, they said to me, um, the average stay was four weeks. And my husband and I both later said to each other, oh, well, I'm, you know, Sandy's a quick learner. She'll be out of here in two weeks. And I ended up being there for four months. And I honestly believe that the, the two things that really contributed to the length of my stay and the severity of my illness was, first of all, the fact that even though I initially accepted the diagnosis, I later came to pretend I was fine because I didn't want to be seen as deficient. Um, so I had a mask on most of the time and wasn't letting people see what was really going on and that's something that i'd love people listening to this podcast to take away as a, a learning is that we've got to be brave enough to put the mask down and and talk about how we're really feeling no matter how scary it is to do that and i think the second thing that contributed to the severity of my illness was that i had let it go on for so long uh, by the time I was admitted uh, to that unit, Jesse was nearly eight months old. And so I'd been sick a very, very long time. And again, I hope that's a helpful takeaway for anyone listening to the podcast. And that is the sooner you are brave enough to get help, um, the quicker you'll start recovering. This is a real illness. 
it's not just you know just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real and the sooner we address it the sooner we'll get better yeah um so what would you say your sport weapon, um sport network is like now like like present day oh. would you say it's better than you had when you had your oh, baby absolutely look um I'm, I'm blessed to have a great group of family and friends around me. Um, and I guess it sounds weird to say I'm, I'm blessed to have had another rather serious bout of depression that landed me in hospital. But the reason I see it as a blessing is the fact that I'm the kind of person that whatever happens in my life, I, I always want to find some good in it. You know, where's, where's the learning I can get from it? And, I've got to say some of the best learning I've had in my life has been a result of both the postnatal depression experience as well as the more recent um, major depressive episode I've been through. And thankfully, I had you know, built up a great support network um, before the onset of this second major event happened to me. And... Uh, um- Right, like really <laughs> random question. Were there ever times I know it's quite common with some people with um postnatal depressions, were there ever times where you were out with uh, your baby and thought, Oh, I could just leave him here and everything would be yeah. okay? I know there's times where mum, mum, some mums feel like that, that they just need to leave the baby there because they yeah. can't cope. Um, well, thankfully, I can say I, I don't recall ever thinking that or feeling that. I do remember when I was in the hospital for that period. Um, the, when when you um, when you were admitted to this clinic, they asked you, "Do you have your own psychiatrist?" And I remember laughing and saying, "No, I've got an accountant, but I've I've never needed an, a psychiatrist." So they just you know matched you up with someone who had space on their um, their schedule to take you. And the first psychiatrist I was matched with. Um, he and I didn't gel and he really just believed in prescribing a series of antidepressants and different medications for me. And eventually he wanted me to take a medication which would prohibit me from breastfeeding. And although I was, you know, certainly supplementing the breastfeeding with bottles by this time for sure. But I remember the last, that night that I last breastfed Jesse and thinking, well, he really doesn't need me anymore. Uh, because breastfeeding is the only thing I'm doing for him that no one else is doing. So I'm not really necessary. And so the next day when my sister came to visit me, I had my, I had all of Jessie's clothes and everything packed up in a bag. And I told her that I wanted her to take Jessie home um, and put him in childcare with, with her daughter and that Alan could have him at night so they could sort out whatever they were doing, you know. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't needed anymore. And she just looked at me and she said, well, you know, this is a mother and baby unit, Sandy. You can't be here without a baby. <laughs> and I said, well, put me somewhere else then. Um, I, ju- I just, that was the point, Joe, where I felt like I, I was just redundant. I mean, what have we given you? What an incredibly difficult kind of situation. I mean, I guess when you're wanting to kind of just feeling that you you had nothing more to give, 
really to Jesse. I mean, I, I'm wondering, Sandy, looking back at the time in the unit, what what helped and and what was less helpful? Do you think? Um. Well, one thing that was helpful that I actually had the courage to do, uh, and that was tell my husband and sister who who was allowed to visit, who I wanted to visit me, and no one else was welcome. Um, because I I knew I would be, um, I'm not sure what the word is. Um, if, if I had a lot of my friends and colleagues coming in who were out in the real world living their life, I would probably put that extra layer of guilt on myself about, well, there you go. I'm not, and I'm in here. And so it had to be people that I felt I could be myself with. Um, and so there was only a, a small handful of people that I allowed to come in and see me. And I, I actually found that very helpful. Um, one of the things that bothered me the most when I was in there, because I did a lot of crying and a lot of staring into space, and I one day realized, or the thought came to me, oh my goodness, I'm ruining Jesse's life. You know, he's, he, every day he sees a mother who's either crying or staring vacantly into space. And, and what if I'm scarring him emotionally? Um, and I'm very pleased to say he's a very wonderful 26-year-old, um, good-looking, clever young man who's found a lovely lady to spend the rest of his life with. And but what what helped me be aware that he was all right, despite these fears of mine, was that um, my sister and the husband took a lot of photos of him in the hos in the hospital. Um, and every photo of him, he was smiling and beaming like a cheshire cat. Um, whether whether he was just hmm. playing on the floor with some other babies or whether he was playing with the vacuum cleaner that the cleaner let him play with, you know. Um, so that was really good, that I could keep looking at those photos and reminding myself that he, he was doing okay. Yeah. And, and I guess something that we've talked about uh, on the show that you, that, that you sure. touched on, Sandy, is kind of personal growth through suffering. Mm. And, and yeah, and I guess just kind of going back to what you were saying, looking back, you feel that, you know, kind of suffering in the way that you did, I guess a positive that's come, come from it is personal growth and transformation through that suffering. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Mark, even as you say the word suffering, I, I sit here and think, oh, suffer not really um i mean yes of course i did suffer but i i never labeled it as that afterwards um i label it as at the experience i had the thing that happened in my life for me the same way that if somebody was in a a serious car accident you know well that's something that happened to us but i, I prefer to look on the um it, I know I can frustrate people sometimes, but I'm the eternal optimist. The glass is definitely always half full. Um, so once I recover, I do look back and go, well, what what did I learn from that? And and now in my life, actually, major focus of uh, my work um, and my volunteering time is devoted to helping people find the courage 
to ask for help when they need it. Um, because uh, I just think if we could destigmatize mental illnesses and start to accept that mental illnesses are as real as any physical illness that can be seen um, and create a society that says, yes, we, we want people to be physically well and we want them to be mentally well. And sometimes we need to be able to put our hand up and say, hey, but I need a bit of help now with this thing called mental wellness. Um, am I right in saying you uh, read when I, you emailed me? You run your own um, podcast yes, I as do. well? Yes. Um, look, it was. Uh, I've been self-employed for over 30 years and always worked in the area of communications and leadership development. And a couple of years ago, I thought, no, what I really do is help people have courageous conversations. So, um, you know, dealing with bullying and harassment in workplaces, uh, helping leaders deliver honest and respectful performance reviews. And then it was late last year that I thought, no, what I really want to focus on is psychological safety in the workplace and creating um, workplaces where people can feel safe enough to, to ask for help if they need it, to thrive and work at their best. And um, the podcast that I have is Psychological Safety Works. Yeah, um, we'll oh. share the link when the podcast is goes live. Um, I also read that you were a speaker for Beyond Blue oh, yes. or Ambassador. Yeah. Well, I, um, I happily met, I think it was about six years ago, I happened to be at the right place at the right time, and I got uh, selected by Beyond Blue to run some breakfast seminars on their behalf. And it was a fixed-term contract in different areas of regional Victoria and New South Wales. And when the contract was finished, I said, well, what can I do next? And they said, well, next time we have an opportunity like that, we'll certainly call you. Uh, but in the meantime, do you know we have this Ambassadors and Speakers Bureau, which consists of people like myself who all have lived experience of a mental health condition. And they, Beyond Blue receives... Oh, over a thousand requests per year um, from corporate organizations through to sporting groups um, to have someone with lived experience to come and talk about that again to raise awareness and reduce stigma. So I heartily put my hand up for that and said, Yes, please. And we're put through a training course and we're given help in um, designing how we can present our personal story uh, when we speak publicly about it. And it, it, and it oh. yeah, I mean, in terms of the destigmatizing <clears throat> mental health and, you know, and, and, and kind of everything, you know, that you're about, Sandy, now, you know, it's something that Joe and I, you know, are, are kind of really about on this podcast. I think allowing people to feel okay about asking for help, you know, whether that's be in the workplace or, or, or not, or in, in any area of life, I think is incredibly important. You know, things are shifting a little bit in the UK, but there is a lot of work to do mm. on this. It's really great what you're doing uh -huh. because, you know, to send the message because mental health, you know, to talk openly about mental health, I think makes it, allows other people to do the same. Yes. And look, whether it's a, 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 um, 
uh, a diagnosable mental health condition or simply that we're going through a really tough part of our lives. Um, being able to speak up about it um, and having the courage to do that. And yes, some people may turn their backs and say, well, you know, that's not something I can deal with. Or, and, and gee, you get a lot of platitudes, whether, as I say, whether you have a diagnosable condition or you're just going through a rough time, people say, oh, well, you need to get out and get more exercise or, oh, you need to go out and get more sunshine. And certainly if you have a diagnosed mental health condition, you need a lot more than just exercise and sunshine. Um, uh, uh, look, I, I'm a great believer in practice what I preach as well. And um, my most recent podcast, I talked about um, why my podcast had been on pause for many months this year and why I'd come back. And um, it had been on pause because I went through a major depressive episode as a result of COVID and isolation and 100% loss of income in my business. And I've had so many people contact me saying, oh, you're so brave to talk about it. And my honest response to that is, well, what a hypocrite I'd be if I didn't talk about it. Now, I'm, I'm wanting to encourage other people to understand that it, we can find people with whom we can be safe and feel safe and, and say how we're struggling. Um, and I, I need to model that for people, I believe. <laughs> yeah, this is the aim we're trying to get with this podcast. And do you got any like last tips you'd like or advice you'd like to give to anyone with postnatal depression or someone that's suffered from it? Well, with regard to postnatal depression, I think for the women, this who may be affected by that, the number one thing I would say is do not compare yourself to others. I know that's easy to say, but you're an individual and you and your baby are important and you and your baby will find a way to live the way you need to live, if that makes any sense. And so it's it's not helpful to compare ourselves to other people. Um, and if you have a supportive partner, fantastic. Um, and make sure you have other supports as well. Identify that group of people who you know you can be 100% truthful with. Those people who you can take your mask off and let them know what's really going on for you. And the sooner you do that, the sooner I promise you will get well. It reminds me, I remember being in the mother-baby unit and the nurses kept reassuring me that everyone always recovers from postnatal depression. And after, you know, two months, three months, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to make history. I'm going to be the one woman who never recovers from this. But they were absolutely right. We, we do recover. We just, we need to accept the help when it's offered and we need to uh, get help sooner rather than later. Thank you very much for sharing the story. Um, we will share like any of your links and anything on our Facebook and our website. Um, just say thank you again, Mark, for helping co-host and hopefully we do get the message out there that mental health is real and, and the stigma. Um, just say thank you to everyone for listening as well. 
Um, and that is it for episode five. Next week, we've got some special guests who will be talking about their mental health charity um, fitness wear. Um, yes, yeah, so thank you both of you for joining us. And thank you again oh, to Sandy pleasure. for sharing thank our story. For me. Thank you. Okay, Bye. nice to talk to you, Sandy. Thank Bye-bye. you, Mike. Bye-bye.